This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. This week on Lens Me Your Ears, we take a look at the career and work of Clint Eastwood, who, you know, despite being known by most as a tough guy movie star, has a lot more going on as both an actor and a director. Well, where do you start with the career of a guy like Clint Eastwood, who's been going strong since the 1950s? You can imagine that's, uh, you know, that's like a, like a 60-year career. It's, it's unbelievable that... Uh, he has been in the game this long, from very humble origins as a Universal Studios contract player, uh, to one of the top directors in the world, uh, who just had the biggest success of his directorial career with uh, American Sniper, and that's it's uh, just released on uh, on home video and to other formats, and that's kind of why we're going to take a look at our favorite films by old squint eyes uh, <laughs> in this episode of Lens Me Your Ears. Yeah, it is crazy. This guy. I mean, I grew up with him. He was one of my father's favorite uh, people on screen movie stars. And as a result, I saw a lot of his, his seventies work, probably too young to, uh, a lot of that stuff is fairly mature. It's very violent. You know, he had this image of being, he may, he played heroes who used his fists and guns to, to get what he wanted. And, uh, and that, that image still follows him today. I think he's can still considered that a tough guy in that almost like the successor to John Wayne, maybe not so black and white, but certainly in terms of his, his persona as a movie star, that's the way people think of him as, as, and, and certain in his later life, he's become more politicized and he's stumped for Republican people and Republican candidates for president. And some of that's gone well, some of it hasn't, <laughs> but, uh, but I still think that this, Despite all, he still people still think of him as that tough guy. And 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 the funny thing is, is as we went back, and I, I've seen your choices for your five favorite Eastwood movies, and my five favorite, and they're fairly idiosyncratic. You know, I think I think most people know that he was Dirty Harry. He did five Dirty Harry movies from the early seventies into the mid eighties, and of course, most people know he was the Man with No Name, the, the star of the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns, as they were called. There were three westerns where he was this this quiet taciturn killer and uh, and then and then he's had various hits over the years since then so uh, as a director even more so in recent years he's he sort of stepped away from the being in front of the camera and had made a succession of of mostly pretty great movies as a director and and I had mixed feelings about American Sniper and I I really but I really appreciated that it was kind of a zeitgeist movie when this opened in January and and more people went to see it I think than any other movie ever released in January. It was a huge yeah, success. Gigantic. Gigantic. And and then I went to see it and I was like, okay, I kind of see what it's about. Um and I, I don't think we need to get into it. I don't think I don't know if it's your one of your favorites. No, I didn't uh, make my top five. <laughs> no. But no. uh it's uh I saw it as a nice return to form. I, I feel like he's had a few stumbles in recent years. Uh there've been a string of films. Right, like J. Edgar and Hereafter. And, and Hereafter and yeah. uh and Jersey Boys, mm. which uh you know was a kind of a big disappointment. It, it, you know, that that like um like J. Edgar, he just didn't seem to be the right director for the job in that case. Um you know, he, he's he, he can be kind of a journeyman director, but I don't think he can direct every kind of movie that's ever made. Um, you know, I, clearly he made Bird, so somebody thought, oh, he's good at musical biopics. But but Jersey Boy was Jersey Boys was kind of out of his grasp. I think I think it required a lighter touch that than, than he could provide. And um, you know, so American Sniper was uh, it, it felt like he was back on familiar ground with a character that he could relate to in some ways. And and I think of the character in that film as being quite a bit different than the the real life uh man who's you know the, whose life the movie is based on i think uh, i i i feel like i enjoyed the film more by distancing it from the actual events of yeah of what I happened in the character of, uh, that, yeah. of, of the, the now i can't remember his name chris uh kyle kyle yeah um uh you know that it's they're 
they're different things, <laughs> reality yeah. and films. And, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly think aspects of his life were correctly portrayed, but, but so, certain aspects were kind of toned down to make him seem more sympathetic and, and so on. But, uh, and Bradley Cooper gives one of the best performances he's ever given. He's, a, he's, a, sure. he's an actor that's taken me some time to warm to, but I, I've certainly, uh, you know, I, you know, I, uh, thankfully he recognized that his roles in the hangover movies, uh, were more of a hindrance than a help to his career. And, and, tried to do as much to distance himself yeah. from that sort of thing and i think he's done a good job of it i think um, so too yeah yeah i would say that that uh the thing i think of the thing about american sniper i liked i like the stuff that took place out of country i like the stuff yeah. that was happening in iraq and 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 if it had been just a war movie just ex- the experiences of of the men who were there i think when they got back to america that's when it kind of fell apart and it felt too much like a melodrama and a little bit a little bit simplistic but uh but yeah i can understand why it it, it struck a core with the American public because I think that after 10 years of 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 whatever we're doing the American whatever United States is doing in 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 the Middle East I think Americans were ready for a story that allowed them some kind of closure for what they were doing there and in the same way although it's a very different film in the same way that maybe Rambo did for for <laughs> Americans who were like tired of 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 the the moral ambiguity of of Vietnam and not understanding all of what happened there I think I think there was a similar feeling and I think maybe American Sniper provided a similar sense for them it's it's hard to know sometimes it's hard to know why a movie gets huge like that out of the out of the gate but that's that's what happened here well it, it definitely struck a chord in the heartland which is uh you know the, what accounts for its huge success um you know i don't know how it's done overseas a lot of these films uh make most of their money in foreign markets so i don't know how this film had performed in that uh in that regard but it's certainly done well in in north america uh, uh, oddly enough uh, i was trying to think of like a precedent in clint's career and uh i thought of heartbreak ridge right where sure. he plays our you know hard-bitten former marine called back into duty to whip some some guys into shape for the invasion of grenada I believe. Uh-huh. and um which yeah. is a film that uh i remember watching at the time it came out thinking i was going to hate it and ended up you know because just being a, a young anti-establishment kid just thought this is gonna be a bunch of militaristic crap and i ended up really enjoying it and that's kind of where i turned around on clint eastwood was around that time so uh that that movie although not recognized as one of his best films um was a formative one for me in terms of uh, learning to appreciate him as a as a filmmaker and an actor at the same time yeah i think i think what we're going to find here as we go through our favorites is that that image of him as being this super tough guy you know, straight shooting Dirty Harry is actually not representative of of his more interesting work. Yeah. And and that in fact he was much more experimental with his image and with the stories he liked to tell than than his huge hits would necessarily represent. Now, uh, uh, and when I think about some of his movies like like Tightrope or even in the Line of Fire or more recently Gran Torino, he has been playing with with a lot of aspects he's he's very self-aware and he's also a great storyteller as a director and an actor now he's he's been producing movies for more than 45 years with his malpazo i think i'm pronouncing it wrong yep. malpazo company and since hang him high in 1967 so almost 50 years of producing so he's very much had a control over his career from a producer standpoint so he's been able to get projects made from the beginning like he's been able to choose which movies he wanted to direct and which ones he wanted to act in and uh, and as a result he's he's got an incredible body of work so let's let's go back and look at them chronologically at our five favorites each and i'll start with one that uh, that i remember from when i was a kid that has a soft spot for me as a kid a lot of action movies i saw were men on a mission movies you know the 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 uh, Guns of Navarone and the Dirty Dozen and the Wild Geese, those kinds of movies. And Where Eagles Dare was amongst my favorites. And this is directed by Brian G. Hutton. It's written by Alistair MacLean from one of his novels. And uh, Eastwood is the American commando in this, sort of a supporting part. And I thought he did a really good job. He's the sort of muscle on a rescue mission led by Richard Burton to find a U.S. Army general who's been captured by the Nazis and taken to Schloss Adler, a mountain (laughs) fortress in the Bavarian Alps, to be interrogated. Now, this is a World War II action movie, but it actually kind of doubles as a spy movie. Uh, We were just talking about spy movies in our last podcast. Uh, now there are because there are a few reveals and reversals as the plot goes along, and uh, the, but the third act is pretty much all shooting and explosions. And what I like about Eastwood in this role, opposite Burton's sort of. 
patented brooding. Eastwood is a is tonally an icy cool customer. There's a scene where Eastwood is standing at the top of a set of stairs in the fortress, w- waiting with a machine gun for a battalion of Nazi soldiers, and he just mows them all down. <laughs> I see it in my mind's eye immediately. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this film. I and in fact, there was. There were a bunch, and we were just talking about how there was a slew of World War One films in the '30s, so it was like like a decade or so removed from the First World War, and all of a sudden there was a bunch of films, uh, the Dawn Patrol and so on, all caught in the Western Front, and um, it seemed like the same sort of thing was happening in the '60s, like enough distance had happened that there was a slew of films about the Second World War being produced in the in in the '60s and into the early '70s, and uh, this is probably my favorite of the bunch. I mean, some of them are kind of factual depictions of of like the longest day the d-day invasion um you know battle of the bulge uh battle of remagen and all all these sort of factual based films sort of gave way to more of these kind of stylized fantasy type uh world war ii films like uh dirty dozen and and and, uh eastwood's own kelly's heroes another film that he made um which is more of a comedy world war ii action i mean you've got donald sutherland as a dope smoking hippie in the middle of the <laughs> right. second world war right um you know so you know from the sublime to the ridiculous uh this film has seems to have the right tone and the right amount of action and adventure uh for for, for both sides of that equation um and i think inglorious bastards the tarantino film kind of pays homage to those kinds of films and then takes it a step further by having hitler's death portrayed in a way that we all know it didn't happen in a <laughs> French movie theater, but, you know, it takes the fantasy element of it to, like, the next supposedly logical step. Um, I, I do like that film quite a bit. So th- that, But that film's kind of an homage to these kinds of films mm-hmm. that made the Second World War almost look kind of fun and uh, exciting and, and wonderful to be in. Uh, you know, we know nothing could be farther from the truth. But, uh, but, but this film captures that sense of daring and also danger as well and uh and and eastwood and burton because they're, they're wildly different actors but somehow the two of them seem to kind of play off each other fairly well it's it's an odd chemistry but it's part of what makes this film so memorable well, i think it's because burton gets all the exposition and all the dialogue and eastwood stands there right. looking serious <laughs> and then shoots people when it's required <laughs> and i think yeah i have a very strong memory of saturday morning you know, watching this movie with my dad and uh, maybe repeatedly, uh, maybe it was a series of Saturday mornings, but, uh, but yeah. And I, I just, I love it. And I'm watching it again. The soundtrack is, is very, uh, is really memorable. Uh, and, and that whole broadsword calling Danny boy, there's this famous <laughs> yes. quote of, and that's something I, I think has become very popular in the UK. I think this film is, has a very, a serious cult following in, in the UK. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And I, I, uh, and, and it, it I, I don't know if it was the first Clint Eastwood movie I saw, but maybe it was the first one I loved. Now, you watched Play Misty for Me from 71, and I remember this film being mentioned a lot in connection with Fatal Attraction, when Fatal Attraction came out, and, and there is there is there are some parallels, aren't there? Oh, it's very similar. In, in, in fact, um, you know, Clint Eastwood plays kind of a hep jazz DJ in like the in the San Francisco Bay Area, so sort of up around Carmel, where he'd eventually live and become mayor <laughs> oddly right. enough um and and he's kind of like the a hep jazz dj although i don't know how many hep jazz djs there were at the time but you know it was kind of a milieu he was familiar with he's a big jazz fan as we all know and uh and he has a female fan who turns out to be kind of a stalker not kind of a stalker she really is a stalker and uh played um by Jessica Walters, who most of us probably know from uh, Arrested Development as the the matriarch of the Bluth clan. Here she is, much younger, and uh, just as dangerous as she is on Arrested Development. For some reason, I thought it was Sandra Locke, but Sandra Locke showed up in a lot. Oh of no, other yeah, she doesn't show up on. until uh, the sort of the late mid to late seventies, right, with the gauntlet um, and, and those uh, kinds. And of she plays kind of a dangerous woman in uh, Sudden Impact, the, the, I think the fourth, mm. fourth Thirty Harry movie. Yeah, but uh, but here's Jessica Walters. Um, who uh, becomes obsessed with Clint Eastwood? They have like a one night stand or whatever, and and she uh, she thinks that there's more to it than that. And you know, he's embarks on a different relationship uh, after this uh, kind of tete a tete after this rendezvous, and uh, she doesn't take to it so kindly and begins to terrorize him and his new girlfriend and and uh, you know the people that work for him and, and so on and so forth. So it's um, uh, there had been kind of obsessed women movies before, but none that were quite this vicious this brutal um 
And uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a forerunner for Fatal Attraction. I mean, you know, for some reason, stalking became a big thing 20 years later after this film and became a big plot point and, you know, single white female and a whole slew of, of other films. So, so this is a thriller that had kind of a difference about it. Um, it was Clint Eastwood's first directing job. He'd, I think he'd been in some good films, obviously things like, uh, you know, certainly working for Sergio Leone. He, he spent uh, that whole time basically learning about the art of direction. He'd been in some, some not so great films. So he'd learned what not, what not to do on things like hang him high, which, uh, I think it was directed by Ted post, the definition of a journeyman director, if ever there was one. So, um, you know, and a, a film that's a, an okay Western, but nothing special. Um, you know, so he'd seen what, you know, what makes an amazing film and what makes a, a mediocre run of the mill, um, bottom half of a double bill kind of movie. So he, he took those lessons to heart and kind of puts them into play in, in this, his first directing job. Uh, you know, it's very stylistic, a lot of handheld camera. It's, it's very much as, uh, kind of a film of its era as the sixties are turning into, into the, into the seventies. I don't know if the Manson thing kind of affected him uh, to some degree, but I think there's some element of that in uh, in Jessica Walters' actions against him. That whole you know creepy paranoia. Of it's it, to me, it's so interesting that this would be his first film that he chose to direct. Yeah, it's it's really not a genre that he was uh, associated with in any way. It's a thriller. It's a straight up thriller, more of like almost like a Hitchcockian kind of film in some ways. Um, you know, when he was known for the dollars trilogy, the Sergio Leone films, um, you know, as being the star of rawhide and a Western TV series. And, um, you know, I, I, and I think is one of his few major parts prior to going to Italy to be in a uh, fistful of dollars was ambush at Cimarron pass where he plays kind of a, kind of a crazy rebel soldier. I, I saw it years ago and it, he's so out of character for what we think. You know, he plays this kind of cowardly crazed, rebel soldier uh who who does just does not seem like a typical Clint Eastwood character and he he definitely uh, doesn't have a feel for that character <laughs> at all I guess um and you know when he before he went abroad and learned that less is more in a big big way so um you know here he's still pretty taciturn he's he, he's not very he's not very relaxed as the jazz DJ but it's kind of interesting to see him play kind of a swinger right for a change and uh and uh, it it certainly opened people's eyes up to the idea of him playing different kinds of characters other than, you know, uh, uh, silent gunmen. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, big, it was a big change and, and, uh, and it was a big hit. Now, the same year, he was in The Beguiled, which I recently saw again. This is directed by Don Siegel, who uh, he would work with a, a number of times through, well, the Dirty Harry, certainly. Siegel was, was known as sort of a tough guy director. Now, this uh, The Beguiled is a weird and wonderful movie. Uh, now, you know that Eastwood is moving in a different direction when, in the opening section, he he's playing a wounded Union soldier in the Civil War. He's covered in blood and dirt, and he takes cover from the men who want to kill them with a Southern girl that he has has come upon named Amy. Now she, he wants to keep her quiet as they ride by, so he asks how old she is. She says twelve. And he says, old enough for kisses, and he plants one right on her. <laughs> it's deeply unsettling. Yes, it's uh, a disturbing movie. Very yeah. disturbing. So at that point, he gets Amy carry, sort of half carries him to this Confederate girl seminary where she lives. And her, his name is Corporal John McBurney. They call him McBee. And this seminary is run by Geraldine Page's Martha. And there are there's another young teacher and then six girls at the seminary. And this is where the war and Western elements cross over into a kind of gothic camp. They even have a pet raven on a rope. Uh, <laughs> we, we find out that McBurney, as we, we discovered early on, he's, 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 uh, we've established that he's a manipulative liar and a sleaze, uh, but he doesn't really know what he's dealing with. These, these women and girls, they, are, uh, they have a slew of, of sublimated passions and, and you do not want to cross them, which <laughs> no. he does because he's cocky and and obnoxious and it just goes bad it goes badly it really does it's this is a gorgeous film to look at too i discovered i sort of grew up with eastwood on scratchy and jumpy vhs and television so to see this in hd uh, see any of these early movies in in a really sharp digital format is quite a revelation i i really enjoyed rewatching the beguiled yeah there's a great new set out there uh that collects, I think, seven films by its, you know, because he worked at different studios over over a long period of time. Um, 
mostly he, he, he Malpaso uh, worked, I think, almost exclusively with uh, Warner Brothers for the longest time. Yeah. But um, for a spell there, he made a number of films with Universal. And uh, and they're all captured in the seven-piece set where it divides them into a Western. So you've got Two Mules for Sister Sarah. I think it counts the Beguiled as, uh, Beguiling as one. Um, uh, and uh, I'm trying to think. Joe Kidd, Coogan's Bluff, The Iger Sanction, uh, Play Misty for Me. Um, so it, it kind of gathers all these films in new high definition transfers. And it's, it's, it's kind of a revelation in some cases for some of these films, uh, especially the Iger sanction. I'd only ever seen it on laser disc. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So to watch the, the high definition, uh, version of it with all the mountain climbers and their brightly colored, uh, windbreakers and, uh, you know, standing out against the, the mountain face in Switzerland, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it doesn't necessarily make the films better when they're not very good, but at least it makes them more enjoyable. <laughs> the Iger Sanction is not a great film, but uh, I certainly enjoyed it a whole lot more uh, in, in a proper uh, good-looking copy. Sure. And the, the, the Beguiled is, is kind of a low-budget film. There aren't a lot of uh, locations. It was, um, it was kind of done um, you know, in, a, in, a, in a short time frame. And, and Don Siegel uh, is the director that Eastwood usually points to as his biggest influence as far as oh. directing goes in terms of, you know, making films on time and on budget, if not under time and under budget, like yeah. he's famous for, for bringing films in, uh, you know, for, for below the line cost or whatever. So, um, uh, I think they first worked together maybe on Coogan's bluff. I'm just thinking that off the top of my head. And, uh, in fact, he gives Siegel a part as a bartender and play Misty for me. Siegel shows up in a, in a bit part in the film. And, um, I think he later dedicated one of his films to him, but, uh, and then they had a long relationship going uh, right up to, uh, I think, Escape from Alcatraz, I think was uh-huh. the last thing they worked on together. And, and another fine film, which I don't think made either of our lists, but it's just one of those solid, you know, entertaining uh, narratives that uh, that he just was able to crank out in such a such a short period of time. Um, but uh, th- this film, yeah, I, I did not expect this movie when I first saw it. And in fact, somebody who was a Clint Eastwood fan told me they saw it and they just thought it was too weird and they didn't enjoy it. And I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm getting in for. And I, I fell in love with this movie the first time I saw it. Again, on a jumpy, scratchy VHS copy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but uh, th- just the way he undercut his, his image and and and, and uh, delivered something you did not expect, I just, I just thought was uh, so clever. Yeah, he's and, the villain of the piece, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and you know, I... I don't know how audiences felt about it at the time, but it was, you know, Pauline Kael had a famous hate on for Clint Eastwood and, and kind of panned everything he did. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be curious to go back through her reviews and see what she thought of this one in particular. Um, we should uh, pause for a second. We should, when we come back, we'll talk about a couple of Westerns that made our, our list of our favorite Clint Eastwood movies. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. Well, Clint Eastwood was definitely on a roll. Uh, by the early 70s uh, as a star of westerns, uh, action films like the Dirty Harry series, uh, certainly uh, known for carrying a big gun and, and, and speaking little, only uttering the occasional catchphrase like uh, a man's got to know his limitations and do you feel lucky and eventually make my day, which just got taken away <laughs> of proportion by uh, by none other than President Reagan. And uh and uh, I think uh, Clint probably felt that he was in danger of becoming a, a cartoon parody of himself. He, he definitely seems to have wanted to get away from these roles that were kind of putting him into a corner and uh, wanted to try some, some new stuff. And um, so for his second directorial job, uh, he picked an unlikely title and did not star in it. Um, and uh, as a result, this film uh, is generally not known. I think it only came out on home video within the last five years or so. Um, you know, somebody at Universal Pictures thought, hey, we've got this in the vault. We should probably blow it out of here uh, and uh, and put it out on, on DVD. It's a film called Breezy. Um, and I put this on my list. It's I don't 
think it's an all-time favorite of mine, but it's still pretty fresh for me. I'd only seen it recently. And uh, I, I I ended up enjoying it way more than I thought I would based on the description of it. But essentially, uh, William Holden plays a, a businessman recently divorced, um, very bitter about romance. You know, his wife is sucking him dry in the al- in terms of alimony. He's not looking for romance, really. Um, definitely doesn't want to get married again. And you see, um, you see in the, early in the film, you see he has a one-night stand with a woman he met at a party. And then there's another woman that he'd like to be involved with, but she wants a commitment and he's not going there and so uh he encounters this uh free-spirited young woman late teens i guess played by Kay lens um uh she just calls herself breezy i think her last name is i think her name is edith breezerman <laughs> but she just goes by breezy um she just hops into his car one day and and basically attaches onto him and early on there's some criticism of the youth counterculture that they're a bunch of parasites and shiftless no goods and sort of thing which is the sort of thing you expect from clint eastwood um but we grow to like breezy quite a bit and this weird uh i'll say the november march romance <laughs> uh it seems seems unlikely but it, it it takes the kind of the twists and turns that uh that seem appropriate and and william holden is great i mean he's he's an actor that you know I could watch, you know, read the phone book, but, um, you know, and, and here he seems to be a little out of his element in a way that's kind of good for him. He's, he's on uncertain ground after, you know, you compare this William Holden with the, the William Holden that we saw in the wild bunch. And it's, it's a marked contrast. And, uh, Kay Lenz is actually quite delightful as what I like to think of as the original manic pixie dream girl, which <laughs> the AV club, uh, uh, website is often pointed out in reviews and, and, and think pieces. Um, I, I'm trying to think of an earlier an earlier example, probably like Kate Hepburn in Holiday or something like that. It's kind of the attractive but kind of wacky and off off kilter uh, kind of a romantic uh, female lead. Here, Kay Lenz is this free spirit who doesn't, you know, she just naturally just takes off her top in front of this guy she just met because she's going <laughs> to hop into his shower because she hasn't had one in a while, and uh, you know it, it has this completely carefree attitude that is completely unlike anything uh, that he's ever experienced. But then he feels guilty about you know introducing her to friends and all this kind of thing because she's so young, and um, and and the conflict continues to the film. Uh, it is quite dated. <laughs> it's very much you know obviously given that she's a you know a hippie girl, um, you know that that pretty much puts the date stamp on it right there. But uh, you know, all filmed around kind of the Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles. I kind of liked the 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 kind of the realistic feel of of the neighborhoods and and uh, and her performance is a delight. And she's you know she continues to work today in various uh, in various uh, streams. I think she was just uh, did a voice on Adventure Time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> the uh, the uh, the cartoon series. So so it sounds like it might be something I I should see. It's 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 enjoyable. It's it's fairly slight. Um, but it it doesn't overstay its welcome. William Holden is terrific. Uh, it's fun to play spot the uh, director's cameo <laughs> over the course of the film. He, there's a you can pick Clint out uh, in a heartbeat. Uh, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of, so he pulls an Alfred Hitchcock. He totally so. pulls an Alfred Hitchcock partway through the film. Uh, and I think uh, I, I get the feeling that he made this film in kind of a response to play Misty for me, which uh, I think you know play Misty for me is a great thriller. Um, but I'm sure a lot of critics got out their knives for for Clint at the time, or making what what they considered to be an anti-woman picture. Um, so he makes a, the polar opposite of that film, a, a kind of a, an easygoing comedic romance, which is kind of the last thing you'd expect him to make. Well, the first, yeah, the first one was the last thing I expected him <laughs> yeah, to make. Yeah, that's so, true. So in terms of his his actual the kind of movies that he would choose to act in for the most part, and certainly the ones that he became known for these, these couldn't be more different. No. And, uh, I mean, that's what I appreciate about this film is that he made the film, that, a film that no one would have expected him to make at this point in his career or even later. Um, I, a million dollar baby comes to mind as a film that, but another unconventional, not necessarily a romance, but an unconventional uh, relationship between an older man and a younger woman. Um, and it kind of makes me think back on, on Breezy to some degree. Um, it's funny that I, I've got the DVD of it that was put out and Clint's name is barely on it. Like it's just in the tiniest letters above the title directed by Clint Eastwood. But it, you know, if you just saw it on the rack, you wouldn't even notice it. So it's kind of weird that they would put it out. And apparently he's quite fond of the film. I, I've, I've read a couple of interviews where, you know, he says it was a fun time. He had a fun time making it and uh, William Holden was one of his idols. So well, that's great. I mean, essentially he made it just to work with Bill Holden who uh, years later he would talk about quite fondly and, and um, you know, they developed a bit of a friendship uh, 
before he passed away uh, a few years later. So, um, you know, it was a good opportunity for him. But, um, uh, you know, again, the film is not terribly well-remembered. Uh, I don't think it was well-reviewed at the time, but certainly worth another look just for the stars. Well, one of his his most well-regarded Westerns, once he got clear of the the, the spaghetti Westerns he made with... Uh, with Sergio Leone is High Plains Drifter, and it made your list, and I can completely understand. 1973, and he plays maybe his most vicious and uncompromising character in in movies. I, I mean, it's hard to think of 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 another character that is quite as as uh, that he he plays. Maybe maybe uh, Josie Whale to a degree, but he's softened by the people around him. Yeah, I don't know that his character in High Plains Drifter gets softened at all. There's no softening in this. It's it's a <laughs> It's a brutal movie, and and uh, I don't know if there's a Vietnam allegory happening here. I think I think maybe to some degree there, there is somewhere buried in there if you want to look for it. Um, it's a tough, tough movie, and and uh, you know is uncompromising. I mean, this guy's a killer. He's a rapist. Um, there's really nothing to like about him aside from the fact that it's Clint Eastwood, you know, kicking ass and taking names. Um, we we talked about uh, John Wayne earlier. I mean, it, basically, there was the perception that John, the the mantle of American action hero, was being passed on from John Wayne to uh, to Clint Eastwood, uh, which is certainly true. I think. I mean, Eastwood was kind of trying to play catch up by this point. He's making Dirty Harry esque cop films like McHugh and Brannigan, and and kind of not oh, succeeding. Oh, Wayne, you mean John in, Wayne? Yeah, yes, in the seventies. Sure, it's kind of following the lead of Dirty Harry in a lot of ways, and. You know, finally he flipped around and made some great elegiac westerns like uh, like the Cowboys and the, the Shootist, Shootist. Yeah, um, you know his last film um, and uh, True Grit and so on, but um, which which certainly weren't in any kind of Eastwood mold. But uh, you know, John Wayne is reportedly you know hate, on record as hating this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know it was not that's not how you make a western. You know, there's no one to root for in this movie because basically Clint Eastwood comes into this town and uh, just a you know. <clears throat> literally paints the town red before uh, burning it to the ground basically that that there was some uh some horrible wrong in the past as alluded to in flashbacks and that uh he was going to take this whole town to task for their, their yeah he's he's kind of a, a vengeful spirit he's totally, he's totally an avenging angel yeah. and uh you know there's every indication that perhaps he's uh a, a spirit from beyond the grave perhaps come back to uh to take his revenge before returning to hell <laughs> that he came from or whatever and uh the that the fact that there's like a supernatural aspect to this film makes it pretty interesting because that's not something you're used to seeing in westerns, yeah. Um, <clears throat> at least not on this side of the pond. Uh, and uh, it's it's you know you, if you go into it not knowing much about it, you don't necessarily expect it to be as brutal as it is. And uh, you know I think that's probably one of the reasons why it stands up today. You know, that it's almost Tarantino esque <laughs> in its level of of violence and and, and vitriol. And uh, uh, you know I think I think it gets painted in a rosy hues of a classic western but but it's it's a lot more than that i think yeah i agree i agree and it's funny the very next year he shifted gears again and he was in thunderbolt and lightfoot in 1974 now this movie was written and directed by michael cimino who would go on to the triumph of the deer hunter and then the tragedy of heaven's gate uh <laughs> which weird of course, arc. <laughs> yeah i mean rather heaven's gate is actually pretty well regarded now but it's taken many years for people to come around to the the fact that it wasn't a complete disaster um now now milius john milius and michael cimino and uh worked together with eastwood on the dirty harry sequel magnum force so that's how they knew each other yeah. and uh and so cimino got this gig writing and directing this movie i chose it for one of my my favorites it's because I, I think it represents eastwood's more down-to-earth drama and comedies he made in the in the 1970s and it has a real anarchic energy it's it's start it's parts of it reminded me a bit of Tulane Blacktop, but it's a lot more violent and a lot more playful. Uh, it's a it's a movie in in love with the American landscape and definitely the American outlaw. In it, Eastwood is a notorious bank robber nicknamed Thunderbolt, who uses a giant a cannon, basically a huge <laughs> gun, to bust into a bank vault, and that's his sort of his trademark. He teams up with Jeff Bridges Lightfoot. Now Bridges is so young in this, uh, but it's funny that his voice hasn't changed very much. So it, it, his voice is still a little bit gravelly, which gives him a gravitas that suits him even in in this role, which he's supposed to be playing the more lighthearted, jokey of the two of them. Now Thunderbolt's old colleague. 
colleagues are still out for blood. George Kennedy and Jeffrey Lewis. They, uh, they, the, 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 the heist that went wrong, basically, and they blame Thunderbolt for it, and the money went astray. So they're hunting him. They finally catch him, and they're going to kill him. But they all wind up bearing the hatchet when they all agree to knock over the same, the same bank in the same way one more time. Of course, naturally, things don't go very well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a great movie. In some ways, again, it's very much of its time. Uh, and and it, it, it does feel like one of those hangovers of the 60s movies. It's 74, so it's close enough to that sort of um, that, that, that change, that shift that happened in the culture but it's uh but it's it's fairly downbeat and certainly the ending is extraordinarily bittersweet yeah this is a film like a lot of these um, sort of early to mid 70s eastwood films that kind of fell by the wayside that that, that his career kind of got overshadowed by the spaghetti westerns and the dirty harry films and uh you know and this film was kind of forgotten i think in home video um kind of resurrected it to a great degree more than some of the other films that were kind of already affixed as, as like the Eastwood classics. Whereas this film, I think kind of came from behind, especially when it, once it got issued on again, laser disc, which is where I saw it for the first time, uh, in its proper widescreen glory, which is a big, like you say that, that, that Chimino's visual eye is a big part of what makes this film stand out. Um, the road picture aspect of it, um, is, 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 is certainly wonderful. And, and the chemistry between, uh, Eastwood and Bridges is, is, is a little different. You know, you're not used to him teaming up with, with that kind of, sort of laid back lazy fair kind of character um you know and there's so many elements in this that, that work uh you know from from the supporting cast that george kennedy is a great heavy you know I, I i can enjoy him in just about anything even those airport movies where he <laughs> yeah. just you know yeah. has to save the plane once again um and uh you know it's again it, eastwood plays against his his image a little bit um it's so funny. I think he plays against his image more than he lives up to it mm-hmm. you know, over the course of his career. And, uh, you know, but he still gets to play kind of the, the, the rugged professional guy who wants to get a job done and done right and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, the film kind of undercuts the notion of that kind of character succeeding in the real world. So, uh, and, it, and it, yeah, promising debut from Chimino, um, who, I, I always wonder what the relationship was like, or their working relationship, because they obviously never worked together again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder if his principles clash with Eastwood's kind of like tight budgeted, get it done kind of, kind of <laughs> aesthetic. I, you could see that though. Though Chimino took years to get his movies made, so yeah. so it, it's not like he had a lot of work to to join Eastwood on in these in no, the future. But uh, you know, I, I I get the feeling there was probably some tension there. I think the film is pretty fondly remembered. It's 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 definitely a fun one to discover. Yeah. You know, because it's it's it probably gets talked about more now than it did at the time, but um, especially, you know, considering Jeff Bridges' sort of great latter day career post Big Lebowski. Sure. You know, it kind of fits in really well with that. Sure. And I, I think I think it also fits in with Eastwood's like, you know, um his his unpretentious you know comedy action stuff even the orangutan pictures and maybe maybe the stuff that followed there i, I think i think he he uh, th- there's a charm there that, that he 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 rode on his star charisma and in a way that not a lot of actors can do and i think it it showed how how uh, how much of a movie star he was cuz he could just step into a role and be be magnetic um now we should mention i think the next one on our list on your list specifically is the outlaw josie wales which also uh <laughs> basically made my list too but i'll let you have this one <laughs> um because really it's my favorite western of his even more so than unforgiven which is a classic and absolutely no doubt but there's something about outlaw josie wales came in 76 directed by eastwood written by forrest carter philip kaufman and sonia chernis and it is a about it sets up a story that is very much like like what you might expect from an east western he's a missouri farmer during the american civil war his family's murdered by a group of union soldiers called the redlegs now he joins the fight against the union and when the confederates lose and they give up um the those nasty union folks the the soldiers they shoot them all but josie wales managed to escape he becomes a hunted man and at this point he is the you know the toughest of all tough western characters but what happens in the course of the movie he gathers around a motley crew of mismatched misfits including uh chief dan george and sandra Locke and sam bottoms is in it and and uh yeah i think i think that that's what 
what makes this movie so it again he he establishes his tough guy credentials and then he undercuts them as the movie goes on in a much more charming and much more comedic way uh, you know it, it is a revenge drama it has that classic line where where the bounty hunter is coming for him and they have the discussion in the bar and and he asks him if he's a bounty hunter and the guy goes goes uh, it's a living and, and he goes uh, dying ain't much of a living boy <laughs> Which for me is one of my favorite lines of his, but uh, but yeah, amongst amongst High Plane Drifter and Pale Rider and Unforgiven, I think it it is one of the great ones of his. Yeah, it's that that humanistic element to it, uh, and and also again humor. There's so much humor in this film, which you know I don't always think about. It. I, you know, the grim revenge drama um, is usually the image that that comes to mind when when you think back on this film. And then you go back and watch it, and I'll. Just his interactions with Chief Dan George, and uh, you know the the old woman from Kansas who kind of gives him a piece of her mind, and and and, and Sandra Locke's fairly charming. I don't think she was that great an actress, but she you know this this role seemed uh, fairly tailor made for her in her her limited capacities. I, I, I guess she turned into a, not a bad director in later years, but. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think there's, I mean, there are moments like he has this habit. His character has a habit of chewing tobacco and spitting, spitting. On, <laughs> on dogs, <things>. on dogs, <laughs> and on a scorpion at one point. Yes, and it's just like little moments of humor that that kind of is because <laughs> it, it starts out it, with this brutal, you know, rape and killing of his family by these uh, these red legged, uh, you know, union. Uh, I can't remember if they're the Jayhawkers or or it's or the bunch that he joins up were but anyway the 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 the, these these horrible northern mercenaries that just take out his family it just starts on this grim uh note you know with him i think even the credits are still rolling as he's burying his family yeah i'm not mistaken and uh you know so you're prepared for something that's going to be really dark and and um and and kind of brutal especially if you just come out of something like high plains drifter and so on uh but then it, it turns out to to have a you know, in in between bursts of violence or these great gentle moments where he has to kind of regain his humanity um, over the course of the film and learn what it means to be part of a family again. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that was a pretty revolutionary thing at the time, certainly for him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that... Uh... That yeah, I think you would you would not you would do yourself a favor for watching uh, his those westerns I mentioned and and this one being being maybe the high point. Uh, I uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure to go back to these ones. It's fun, it's funny looking at uh, it came right after the Iger Sanction, which I mentioned earlier, which is not a great film. Uh, it's I'm glad that it's on Blu-ray though because at least I can enjoy it. Um, you know, because it's got this great European location. I think it's all pretty much all takes place in Europe except oh no, there's there's a bit where he's in like a monument valley or something like that right you know getting his mountain climbing uh jones on with george kennedy again and um <laughs> you know but basically he plays an assassin who has to take out a guy on this mounting mountain climbing expedition and uh you know clint directs but i don't think he had a lot of control over the script and his character didn't have a lot of depth to him he plays he plays a an art collector named hemlock who's also a professor and former cia assassin and expert mountain climber it's just such a weird improbable match of of character traits that, that it doesn't really come together um so I, I think after that experience he starts to exercise a lot more quality control in the films he's in i think the Iger sanction is the, the sort of like marks the end of his kind of studio period where he would just you know be in whatever vehicle uh came his way and he starts to tailor his career a lot more to uh, the things that are suited to him, and uh, cause we don't see him attempt anything like that really for for a long time after that. The characters that he plays, um, you know, until he tries to take a chance maybe with Honky Tonk Man, where he plays a, a, a dying country singer, you know, which is kind of a, a something something new to a lot of his listeners. But um, uh, I think this the the outlaw Josie Whale seems to mark the the start of a new phase of his career where he's really clamping down on what kind of films he makes and who he's making them for. Sure, sure, and I, I uh, we, we'll talk about uh, a few more of his films going into the eighties and uh, the nineties um, at the next section. So in the eighties. Eastwood revisited Dirty Harry a couple of times to the last one. The Deadpool wasn't so great. Uh, he, he made another pretty great Western, I thought, Pale Rider. Uh, but he, I really 
I thought I found revisiting White Hunter Black Heart from 1990 such a pleasure. Now this is a a real unusual entry in his in his catalog of films. It's based on Peter Viertel Viertel's experiences. Uh, Viertel, I think, is how you pronounce yep. his name. Uh, his experiences working with John Huston in one of his classic films, The African Queen, and it stars Eastwood as Huston, except it's fictionalized. I think probably to avoid a, a, you know any any legal action. Um, he plays a guy named John. Wilson and uh, it uh, of course African Queen one of the first Hollywood films to shoot on location in Africa and in in White Hunter Black Heart uh, the the sort of narrator the person the sort of person we we connect the story through is Jeff Fahey's uh, Viertel character. Also in the cast, Marissa Berenson, who who uh, you know pretty much was had a big big work worked a lot in the in the seventies. Uh, here she she's the Catherine Hepburn character. She actually does a great sort of mild impersonation of Hepburn. Uh, also George Zunza is in it, who was worked a lot in the eighties and nineties. He plays the producer. Uh, now. Uh, Eastwood, uh, he puts paid to anyone who ever said in his films he just plays a variation on a theme here, <laughs> yeah. because this is a very different character for him in, in a very different movie, which really is a tragedy. He channels some of, of Houston's mannerisms. If you're familiar with the way John Houston talked and the way he, he, he used vowel sounds, uh, you, you definitely get a sense that Eastwood is, is, is going in that direction, and he <laughs> even has some of that wrinkly closed mouth smile and growly mid-Atlantic enunciation uh, and he and it gets uh, the film gets a lot of mileage uh, from that and, uh, and and from from this character that Eastwood is creating and I, I really really enjoyed that uh, the film also gets a lot of mileage in, in John Wilson's arriving in Africa and going out of his way to deflate prim and proper colonial Brits <laughs> uh, a bigoted anti-Semitic woman and a, and a white hotelier who bullies his African staff uh, but mostly it's about the ego of this filmmaker and his passion to shoot an elephant in the Congo. And it makes you wonder sort of what drew Eastwood to this material. Was he was he trying to sort of deflate his own persona as a director as well as as the the movie star? It's it's or it's possible that he just was trying to get into the soul of a filmmaker that he he admired and and uh, as much as deconstructing any any possible image he he might have developed. Um, now the now Eastwood's next film after this was Unforgiven, which I think kind of was his final word on the western and i think it was a wonderful a wonderful film but it's uh it's it's interesting that these two films if you watch them back to back which i almost did i guess in preparing for 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 this podcast um it feels like eastwood is trying to come to peace with some of the costs of violence maybe as he's getting older he's starting to realize that that the characters he played in the past which used violence so often uh that he's starting to tell stories now about the results of that and what they do to a person. And I think that, I think that theme runs through White Hunter Black Heart as well as Unforgiven. Yeah, I didn't love White Hunter Black Heart when I saw it, when it came out. Um, I, as I mentioned on a previous episode, uh, our espionage episode, that John Huston is my favorite director. So the thought of Eastwood playing a version of him, a fictionalized version of him, I, I, I think I went in with a certain amount of trepidation, and so maybe that wasn't the best foot to, to step in on. Sure. Um, I think it's a film I need to revisit, but um, I think I think it's a film I admired more than loved, um, you know, and I appreciated uh, Eastwood for taking on the challenge. I I think he did a great job, actually. I was I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I, I felt the, the film had some loose ends to it, and... I, I didn't necessarily love how they fictionalized the whole African Queen experience. I felt that maybe a better film could be made of that whole story. But, um, you know, certainly certainly an interesting angle to take on it. Um, and, uh, yeah, one of one of a handful of decidedly un-Eastwood-like characters for him to play. I think he admired Houston a great deal. I mean, you know, Maverick director, doesn't take any crap from the studios, makes right. the projects that he wants to make. I think I think he certainly saw a kindred spirit in him. It's a shame they never worked together. Um but I mean, aside from Honky Tonk Man, I can't think of uh, too many characters from that period that Eastwood played that didn't seem like definitive Eastwood style characters. Um, and uh, it certainly <clears throat> marks—I uh, think that film marks a, a new phase for him as well, just the same way Outlaw Josie Wales did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see him coming out of uh, some some pretty awful films, <laughs> Pink Cadillac, <laughs> The Rookie, right. City Heat, which was a which was I I was going through the filmography and City Heat with uh, Burt Reynolds feels like the f- uh, first real serious misstep 
Um, I mean, even the Auger Sanction, even while it's not terribly successful, um, it's still an enjoyable sort of middling spy assassination thriller. Yeah. Um, the City City Heat is one of the first films he made. I thought that kind of misfired on all cylinders. Well, yeah, I think I think it was an opportunity for him to work with the other big star of the day. He and Burt Reynolds yeah. were both the biggest stars in uh, in you know internationally. The biggest stars in the world, and so they had a chance to work together on a light like comedy action comedy and i guess it didn't do very well and i, I haven't seen it so many years i can barely remember but i i did uh, had the opportunity to interview jane alexander uh for a story i was writing uh some years ago because oh, yeah. she she lives in nova scotia uh at least part of the year she does and she was she was here i think around the film festival talking about a, a project she was trying to get off the ground so i chatted with her and i remembered that she was in that and uh, and she chuckled that i that even remembered the movie <laughs> <laughs> It was not a hit, despite the fact that it had two of the top male leads uh, at the box office. Uh, they had no real chemistry. Reynolds apparently hurt his back doing a stunt or doing something early on in the production and was miserable and high on painkillers for most of okay. it. So, so uh, there's, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes factors as to why. I don't know if it would have been a success if that hadn't happened, but um, it's 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 uh, kind of an awkward fit for both of them. Um, but, uh, you know, like you say, we go into Unforgiven, in the line of fire and, and, and some other uh, films that we'll talk about down the line, but, uh, that, that, uh, he's adapting to his, uh, encroaching age. Yeah. You know, he's not, you know, he, he's not trying to play dirty Harry again. He kind of put that character to rest in a couple of years earlier with the Deadpool, which, uh, I don't think, uh, you know, given that he had no desire to return to the character after that film, it almost feels like the studio pressured him into making it. Cause yeah. I, I don't think he had a lot of love for, for that project either. Um, so, I think taking a cue from Houston, I think he decided to only do things that, that intrigued him. And, um, and the perfect world certainly applies, I think. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about that next. Yeah, absolutely. You go ahead and, and uh, get into that. I know you. Uh, it's one of your one on your list. Yeah, I, I remember really loving this film at the time it came out. I was I was not a huge Kevin Costner fan, and it's it's interesting that uh, Eastwood was making made a film where he was a secondary character. That was kind of an, an unusual choice for him. Um, and uh, and Costner gives what I feel is the best performance of his career in this film, uh, set set in the early '60s. Um, Costner escapes from prison uh, with some vague idea of trying to get from Texas to Alaska in a in a stolen uh, in a stolen Plymouth, I think it was. <laughs> and uh, uh, he he's got a he's got a part. His roommate or his cellmate is a is a guy he has no love for, but he helps him in the escape anyway. And they uh they come to blows and and uh and their hostage turns out to be a young boy the son of a Jehovah's Witness uh family and uh essentially it it turns into almost uh, like a ransom of red chief kind of shaggy dog story with Costner on the run from the cops with this kid in tow who's had this very sheltered life Jehovah's Witness so he can't they never had Christmas no Halloween no birthdays so this kid is kind of on his, the first adventure of his life with this escaped convict and uh, and Eastwood is kind of leading the charge uh, with with uh, with the the investigation to try and track him down in this very fancy Airstream trailer outfitted with the the latest in 1963 crime fighting equipment. <laughs> um, so it's 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 an interesting film in that it's kind of a kind of a bit of a thriller in some senses, um, uh, but it's also got a lot of comedy in it. Uh, the kid spends a lot of the the movie in a Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, Halloween costume, which I just, I just found that so incredibly endearing. Cause like if you're a kid on the lamb and you've never been able to have a Halloween, that would sound like the first thing you would do, um, is, uh, is, is just get, and actually this Halloween costume is made out of cloth, not those cheap plastic ones. <laughs> like it's a quality Halloween costume there you go. for him to, 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 to waltz around in. And it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a chase movie. Uh, it's, it's style is very subtle. But very beautiful. We see a lot of rural Texas over the course of the film, um, and uh, Laura Dern is also along as a as a groundbreaking criminologist who is trying to break into the psychological profile of Costner's character, much to the derision of the the uh, the police and federal agents who are on on the case with her. Um, that aspect of the film is what kind of dates it the most. There's some comedy there at her expense that's not great, <laughs> not. Uh, not as uh not as interesting as as the rest of the film is but um but it's it's a it's a really interesting and and compelling story about the, this guy who just uh you know 
was set on a wrong path at an early age and trying to make up for for lost time um there's there's a, a running theme where you see costner getting visibly upset anytime he sees a child mistreated like spanked or yelled at by a parent or whatever and this happens a few times over the course of the film until it kind of erupts in a uh, in a final scene where they wind uh, up shacking up with a, a sharecropper's family um and uh watching it again some of those scenes scenes seem a little heavy-handed to me now um but they're also they're pretty intense uh and i think the dramatic weight of them uh over overrules the the not cheesiness of them but but the the kind of heavy-handedness of oh. them i think it's what i think costner still plays it pretty well um <clears throat> or as well as could be expected uh so there's it's not a I, you know i don't i don't love it as much as i did when i first saw it um, maybe because I wasn't watching it in the theater because it is visually quite a quite a lovely film, but it, it's definitely worth visiting if you haven't seen it. It's not a typical Eastwood film, and and Costner is is uh, if you never really liked him in anything, <laughs> this might be the film to change your mind about him. Yeah, I uh, I remember seeing it in the theater, and I I was a fan of what Costner had done in in No Way Out and in the um, Untouchables, and uh, and as an actor, I was I was really excited to see him opposite Eastwood, another uh, you know who I'd all grown up with, and uh, yeah, I remember thinking this was a pretty interesting interesting film and and I, I think in some ways given it's a road movie and again you know loving the landscape i think i think it actually has some things in common with thunderbolt and lightfoot in terms of of if you want to group some of eastwood's work together um but uh, yeah i should certainly go back and revisit this is one i i want to see again yeah and it's just you know if you just take it as a character study of this guy who's been in and out of you know juvenile halls and finally prisons all his life uh it's you know this guy is, has learned a few things along the way and they make him smart but not too smart and uh, I like that aspect of it um, that they just found the right level for this character and and Costner just plays it to the hilt you know he's just just has you know he had this kind of laid back you know he was always being compared to to, to Gary Cooper back right. in the day you know after around the time of Dances with Wolves and so on um, and here I think he shows those qualities uh, to to the best abilities. Now, we've got one more film on our list. Uh, we've come to 10 movies uh, from Eastwood's, Eastwood's oeuvre that, uh, that, although he probably never used that word. Probably not. I don't think it's ever. He's only, <laughs> I don't, I'd be surprised if he's ever said that word. Uh, in, and yeah. we, Filmography gotten, is pushing it. Yeah, long really. Long <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, this is also quite an unusual uh, idiosyncratic choice, and I will explain it. I I almost thought about choosing one of his films that he his later sort of movies that he didn't star, and certainly um, The Sands of Iwo Jima and uh, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby. Well, he starred in that or he, he as a as a supporting actor in that. Um, even Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. These are movies that uh, that I have lots of respect for, but uh, I chose The Bridges of Madison County as my final final entry. And I'll tell you why. It's from the book by Robert James Waller. And I worked in a bookstore when the year or so before this movie came out. And this was, I can tell you, this was a very popular book. And it was widely derided by my colleagues at the bookstore. And pretty much most people I knew were just like, oh, that sappy, saccharine romance. Like like a Harlequin romance almost, but had somehow gotten this huge uh, interest. And it, it had become, it was sort of a zeitgeist book in a way that... That that a lot of people reading this book it had enormous success. Now the the movie written directed by Eastwood, a screenplay ad- adapting the book, a uh, Richard La Gravanesi Gravanesi uh, ad- adapted the uh, the book, and uh, in it it takes what I think is a is probably a pretty pretty saccharine story and and brings something truthful to it. I, I found this to be maybe Eastwood's most sensitive performance. Uh, in it, the story of a brother and sister in the present day who dis- they, they are going through their mother's personal belongings shortly after she's died. And they find letters that um, that through letters, they discover that uh, their their Italian born mother had a four day affair with a photographer who visited the, their Iowa town in the mid 60s while the kids and, and their father were were out of town. And and Eastwood took this this story uh and he i think i think he what he made of it was a he turned into a mature love and life-changing uh story of passion and i remember when it was revealed that he would direct it 
I think, uh, and starring opposite Meryl Streep, I think that uh, that fans of the book reacted to the idea that Eastwood would star in it and direct it because they just felt like he was totally wrong for it. <laughs> and Eastwood fans also reacted. <laughs> they were like, this guy is totally wrong for this. But, you know, despite all that, um, he, you know, when he plays the photographer who comes into uh, Meryl Streep's uh, as the as the woman's life, uh, is it's it's wonderful. It's it's a really it's a really affecting story. A lot of it, of course, is Streep, who is who's rarely you know rarely bad in anything. She's really terrific in this, um, and I and I think, but I think it allowed Eastwood to to show a vulnerability that he might not have shown before. And uh, and and he directed Streep into into another Best Actress nomination. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with this movie, uh, but it, it feels like, in some ways, it feels like a callback to Breezy, another uh, sort of unconventional romance. Uh, you know, like if, but of course, you know, most people who saw this film probably didn't see that film. <laughs> you know, it, it barely got released at the time, so so this, you know, this film was a much bigger hit. But but it, you know, if you'd seen Breezy, you'd know he could handle this kind of material and handle it well. I, I think, uh, you know, he has a way of getting you know, unforced naturalistic performances out of actors. And when you've got someone who's got the kind of toolkit that Streep has, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see him work with a, with an actor of that caliber. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great to see it. Cause I think as an actor, he had the chops at this point, he had been working for so long and, and she, she comes from a different school, I think, but, but somehow they made it work. The chemistry worked and, uh, the sort of middle-aged love affair, lots of passion. I think, uh, I think it's a great movie in many respects. And, uh, and so, so yeah, I'm adding it to the list as, as one more unlikely Eastwood excellent Eastwood film. <laughs> um, yeah, so that brings us to the end of our, our voyage in through the, the life of, uh, of and, and work of Mr. Eastwood, and it's been, yeah, it's been lots of fun. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned the letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers film, because I thought that was a great, you know, interesting to see that that battle from both sides was, you know, kind of an unheard of thing to do. And, totally. And uh, I, I thought he totally accomplished it I, I i lean towards the letters from yojima film being the slightly better film but but as as a kind of a one-two punch they're pretty impressive they um, are they are I agree changeling with uh, angelina jolie was a film that did not get great reviews and i ended up really enjoying that i did too film. yeah it didn't quite make my list but i thought she was it was great performance and and a great sense of place that sort of early los angeles kind of atmosphere yeah the, the period setting and i thought it was one of the better performances of her career she's had a not great run of films in the last little while and i think that's a film that deserves to be revisited yeah. um i i find that he had a s- string of not great films invictus the south american soccer movie oh south african yeah. south african sorry yeah. um hereafter which was a, a film about the afterlife that i don't even know if it got into theaters it certainly didn't play around here uh with uh with matt damon uh j edgar and jersey boys a couple of kind of really gloomy <laughs> depressing biopics um you know especially jersey boys like it, you never got the the feeling for why these guys were so successful you know i mean they were the number one group prior to the the beatles coming along and and then you don't get any feel for that so american sniper really uh is 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 a nice uh break in that chain of films yeah, yeah. And, it'll be interesting <clears throat> to see what his next movie which is being made right now about uh sully sullenberger yeah, with tom the, hanks the uh the the <clears throat> The pilot who landed the uh, the seven oh seven or whatever seven 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 on the uh, on the Hudson a few years ago. Yeah, well, there's definitely a story there to be told. I, I'm curious if it'll deal with the sort of sudden celebrity aspect of it. I suspect that it will, um, considering Eastwood is someone who's kind of dealt with that on his own. I, I'm looking forward to that and seeing what kind of approach they take. And according to IMDb, he's also uh, considering uh, the Ballad of Richard Jewell about the guy who was accused of the bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. So, oh yeah, you know, uh, and a uh, so it's interesting that now we've got a string of true life films uh, from, well, I guess uh, if you start with J. Edgar and, and I guess Invictus too, to some degree, but, uh, you know, that he's on the, these these true life docu-picks are what kind of intrigues him at the moment. It's um, to varying degrees of success, but I think after American Sniper, we can't count him out. No, for sure. And I uh, I look forward to seeing what he keeps, he, he keeps bringing to the table. I mean, 85, the guy's still <laughs> doing it. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our look at some of the more idiosyncratic and underrated films of the man with no name himself, Clint Eastwood. 
Hope you get to uh, check some of those films out for yourself and find some hidden gems you hadn't seen before. You can contact us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears, all one word, or search for Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook. We're on Stitcher, and you can rate and review us on iTunes. And if you do, we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Our email is Lends Me Your Ears Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter is at Karsten Knox. And I'm Stephen Cook, and my Twitter is at ch underscore s-c-o-o-k-e. We'll see you next time on Lends Me Your Ears. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.